if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, as we make our way through the first book of Psalms, 1 to 41, this morning we come to the third psalm, and we will see the afflictions that David the king suffered, and yet the hope that he had in the midst of those afflictions as well. We'll begin by reading together Psalm 3, verse 1 to 8. The superscript we read says this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, your servant David suffered many afflictions leading up to his reign as your anointed king and even after it. And yet, even despite, oftentimes, his own sins, you were faithful to keep your promises, to keep your covenant. And because you are a faithful God, he could have hope even in the midst of great affliction. And we see even in Christ that in the midst of his own sufferings, in the midst of him being mocked and ridiculed, he entrusted himself to you fully. And you showed yourself faithful in causing him to rise from the dead, giving him victory over sin and death, and seating him at your right hand. And Lord, when we likewise go through various trials, as our 
promised to us in your word. We desire, we long to be a people who can go through those trials well, that we can fix our eyes upon your promises and to be able to have joy and to sing your praise even in the midst of grief and sorrow. And so, Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we make our way through this psalm that you would instruct us in the ways of righteousness, instruct us in the ways of finding our hope and contentment in you even in the midst of affliction. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a no doubt, a certain kind of spiritual sickness that tends to afflict many Christians. It is a sickness that, if it goes untreated, can be quite deadly and lead to other kinds of diseases sprouting up like anger, bitterness, perhaps even apostasy, total abandonment of the gospel of Christ. Our culture knows something of it, but they tend to see it more through a political lens, political ideology as we often tend to view many things. Depending on what side of the political landscape you're on, it is sometimes described as a victimhood mentality or a entitlement mentality or on perhaps the other side, a, a matter of oppression. But the actual spiritual sickness that is often at the root of these many descriptions and many more like them, is the sickness of discontentment. In its most understandable forms, where one could probably sympathize with the discontent person, discontentment can be present when someone is afflicted in some way and they cannot look beyond their affliction. They cannot see the promises of God and the glory of God beyond their present afflictions. They are consumed by them. It's the only thing that is on their mind. It's as if the situation that they are in will remain the way it is for all eternity. Jeremiah Burroughs one of the Puritans once wrote of this kind of discontentment. I'd like to quote him in full. He said, let not men and women pour too much on their afflictions. That is, busy their thoughts too much to look down into their afflictions. You shall have many people that all their thoughts are taken up about what their crosses and afflictions are. They are all together thinking and speaking of them. 
It is just with them as with a child that hath a sore about him. His finger is always upon the sore. And so it is with men and women. Their thoughts are always on their afflictions. When they awake in the night, their thoughts are on their afflictions. And when they converse with others, nay, it may be when they are praying to God, they are thinking of their afflictions. Oh, no wonder you live a discontented life if your thoughts be always pouring upon such things. You should rather labor to have your thoughts on those things that may comfort you. Now, Burroughs is not suggesting here that the Christian just pretend that his afflictions simply do not exist, that we're just supposed to will them away or declare them out of existence. Burroughs, of course, being a Puritan, was not some word of faith, and I declare and cast out the spirit of discontentment kind of preacher. But he was a physician of the soul. What he was saying is that we must labor to lift our thoughts, even our hearts, up to better and more comforting things. Things that are promised to us, guaranteed to us, by the infallible Word of God. And in the third psalm that we're looking at this morning, we find a very sweet example of David, the king, doing this very thing. In the midst, in the midst of deadly persecution, he is looking beyond the dark clouds of his affliction, and he sees the rays of the Lord's promise shining through, and he finds his comfort and rock in them. Now, as we look at the king's example this morning from Psalm 3, I want to consider this psalm in four parts. And the first part that we'll consider together is the king's affliction in verses 1 and 2. The affliction of the king. Now, the superscript here tells us the situation that gave rise to this particular psalm. We read that it was a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This is, of course, a reference to the events that are recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to 17. And there, David's son had been exiled for a period of time for murdering one of his brothers, Amnon, and, and doing so out of revenge because Amnon had violated his sister. Eventually, though, as the chapters unfold, David restored him. But then Absalom starts plotting against David himself. He conspired 
He planted seeds in people's ears, telling them that if he were king, he would hear all of their disputes and render judgment on their behalf. He would be a great king who would give them favor. He's cutting off everyone before they can bring their disputes to David. And he's whispering as conspirators tend to do. He's planting these seeds, making them think that things would be far better if Absalom was on the throne. And so we are told in 2 Samuel 15 that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel away from his father. And he eventually formed a coup to steal the throne. And when that happened, when the overthrow began to take place, of course it came as a surprise to David. And so he had to flee for his own life. He had to flee and go into the wilderness. That's the affliction that the king is describing here in verses 1 and 2. When he says there, O Lord, How many are my foes? Or my foes are increasing. They are multiplying. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. These words here echo the words of 2 Samuel 15, verse 12, where we read there, And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. David's affliction was the loss of a kingdom. He is here being dethroned. And for such a thing to happen, for such an overthrow like this to happen would, of course, no doubt required thousands of people to be involved in it. Thousands of people to be against you. You can probably think of occasions in your own life where you've had some conflict with maybe one or a few people and that caused you great trouble. Maybe you can think of other occasions where it seems like you have hundreds of people who are against you. Well, David here has a whole nation against him. The kingdom that once belonged to him is now against him and seeking not just to ridicule him, but to kill him. They want him dead. People are seeking his life such that he has to flee the kingdom and hide in the wilderness. And while all of this is taking place, David is hearing, no doubt, from various messengers, probably spies that he had still loyal to him. He's hearing the rumors. He's hearing the gossip. He's hearing what people are saying about him. 
And it's summarized for us in verse 2. The basic message, what everyone believes about him, is that there's no salvation for him. God will not deliver him. God has abandoned him. God is not on his side. He claims to be the anointed king of God, but clearly those claims are false. Where is the king now? We look around. You don't see him in the city of David anymore. You don't see him on the throne. He's fled for his life. Clearly, God is not with him. This is very much like what happened, in fact, to Jesus, David's greater Son, you'll remember from Matthew 27, a passage that we read earlier, when Jesus was crucified, he was mocked. He certainly at this time did not appear to be a king, though he claimed to be the son of God. Here he was nailed to a, cro to a cross like a common criminal. What sort of king is that? Does that look like the Messiah to you? The Messiah is supposed to be strong and mighty. He's supposed to come and do away and destroy all of these Roman legions. Now look at this king hanging on a cross with even robbers hanging next to him, mocking him. This is the king. People cursed him. Just as Shimei had cursed David when he fled. They said of Jesus, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The words that they were saying of Christ on the cross were virtually identical with what they were saying of David. There is no salvation for him. God is not with him. He is abandoned and exposed as a fraud. So this was the particular great affliction that David was suffering, and then Christ after him. But then we come to the second part of the psalm where we see the king's hope in verses 3 to 6. In the midst of the king's afflictions, the king was not consumed by his afflictions. He took comfort in the promises of God. We read in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. This is an image that is often associated with God's determination to preserve and to carry out His covenant promises for His covenant people. In Genesis chapter 15, for example, in verse 1, God in the context had made a covenant promise to Abraham. 
that he would multiply his offspring, that he would make his name great, that he would bless the nations through him. And after a conflict with foreign kings where Abraham saved his nephew Lot, he was then blessed by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And in the midst of Melchizedek's blessing upon Abraham, he said of Abraham that God Most High has delivered your enemies into your hands. And that word there that he used for delivered is the same root as the word for shield. There's a wordplay that's taking place there. So in essence, he's essentially saying that God has delivered as with a shield your enemies into your hands. And then, right after this blessing, in chapter 15, verse 1, God appeared to Abraham and he said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or you can think of Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, in the context of Moses pronouncing blessings over Israel and recounting God's determination to save his people, to keep his covenant promises to them. He said, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. The point is that this image of a shield is not just a reference to God being a protector. It is that, but it is also associated with his determination to uphold his covenant promises. And that's what David the king is thinking about. God has made him promises. God has made a covenant with him. He has promised to establish his throne forever. No matter how many enemies come against him, no matter how many rulers are plotting against him, God had promised to exalt him and his offspring, and no enemies could break the promises of God. We saw that last week in Psalm 2, how God is mocking, ridiculing those who are attempting to overthrow the anointed Messiah's throne. It can't be done. God has fixed the throne and no one can thwart it. This is what David is hoping in. And so he says further of the Lord, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. In other words, you are the one who will exalt me. You are the one who will lift me over my enemies. And then in verse 4, he says there, I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. The holy hill here refers, of course, to Zion, Jerusalem. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. It's where David's throne was established and the covenant was made. The answer to his cry comes as a reminder 
of where it was that the Lord chose to have his dwelling place in Zion, in the city of David, and where it was where the Lord chose to make a covenant with David. And so in the midst of David's affliction, he is looking to and he's remembering very specific promises of God to strengthen him. He doesn't simply lament of his situation in verses 1 and 2 and stay there. He doesn't just stop by announcing, by crying out about the many enemies he has. No, he remembers who God is to him and who he is to God. Which then leads him to a state of contentedness that's really almost otherworldly. He says in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustains me. In other words, I had a good night's sleep. I rested well. I got a good eight hours in, totally unconscious, and woke up refreshed. And he's saying these words. He's saying that he had a, a good night's sleep while he's out in the wilderness with not a place to lay his head. He is not sleeping comfortably on a sleep number bed. He is not sleeping with a plush pillow. He has rocks as a pillow. He has the dust of the ground as his mattress. He has the open sky above him. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the king had nowhere to lay his head. And yet, he slept like a baby. That is an otherworldly kind of contentedness. He says further in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. No place to sleep. Thousands of people are searching for you, wanting your head. And the king says, I'm just fine. What is this? How do you do that? How do you have an entire nation as your enemy, basically? You probably can't even go to other nations because you've angered them by conquering them. You have everyone against you, and you can sleep well outside. Well, he can do this because he has the promises of God on his side. David knows how things will play out 
He may not know all the details. He may not know of the particular valleys that he must go through or the hills that he has to climb over, but he knows the promises of God. And he knows that God is sovereign, and so he knows what the end will be. He knows how the story concludes. His throne will endure. God will be his shield. He is content because of that. In plenty and in little. And friends, this is the same kind of strength and contentment that even the gospel of Christ gives to us, his people. We may not know what tomorrow brings, what particular afflictions may come, or how long they will last, but we do know how they will all end for our good for his glory, and for the establishment of his kingdom. That's the end. That's what the sovereign God is working in all affliction. Good for his people. We may be reviled, and yet we will be exalted. We may be beaten, and yet we will be healed. We may even suffer death. And yet we will live forever. That is the covenant promise that we have received from the Lord. Because of the promises of God in the gospel, there is a strength that belongs to the Christian that carries him through the darkest valleys and holds him up when natural strength would otherwise fail him. The wicked, those who do not know Christ, know nothing of this at all. They stumble over the smallest pebbles on the ground. Ahithophel was a prime example of this. Once, he was David's most trusted counselor. He spoke words of wisdom that were world-renowned, famous. People marveled at his wisdom. But when he betrayed David, when he aligned himself against the anointed of the Lord, and joined himself to Absalom in the coup. David prayed to Almighty God that Ahithophel's counsel would fail in the eyes of Absalom. And then God answered that prayer. Ahithophel's counsel was rejected. And over such a small matter, tiny little thing like your counsel not being heeded over that pebble he killed himself in the same way Judas one of Jesus's close disciples betrayed his Lord 
for a mere 30 pieces of silver. When he realized the foolishness of his actions, he didn't repent. He killed himself. It is trifles, small matters that can often consume the wicked. But the righteous can endure all things. As Psalm 1 says, the way of the wicked will perish. It will vanish in a moment. But as Jesus says of the righteous, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. The strength that the Christian has in the midst of affliction is the same that David had and that all in the great hall of faith have had before us. It is not a strength of resolve. It is not a strength of the will. It is the strength of the promises of God. We look to His Word. We believe what He has promised to us And then we lie down, we go to sleep, and we trust in the Lord to sustain us. That was the king's hope. And that is likewise the hope that is given to us. But then we come thirdly to the king's petition. This is in verse 7, the king's petition. Here we find him crying out to God. He has a prayer request. But this particular request, this petition, is offered on the basis of the promises that have come before. This is, in other words, an example, a good example of praying in accordance with the will of the Lord. And we often, we often wonder, right? We, we, we know that God's answers to our prayers is always yes, insofar as we pray in the will of the Lord. Well, how do we know the will of the Lord? You've got to go to the Word. You, you don't just, you know, declare things into existence. You don't just make things up off the top of your head. You do not confuse your burning desires with the will of the Lord. You bring everything under the Word of the Lord. And you offer up your prayers in accordance with it. This is what David is doing. David knows what the will of God is. You are a shield about me. You are a God who has made a covenant with me. You have made specific promises. You're my shield. Psalm 2, verse 6, the Lord speaks there. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy That's the will of God. The establishment of the throne of David. My king will rule on the throne. I promised that. David's enemies, however, do not believe that promise. They are saying there's no salvation for him in God. They are rising up against him. And so then, what is his prayer? On the basis of their actions and on the basis of God's promises, the king prays, Arise, O Lord. They're arising 
You arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Give me that salvation that they're saying doesn't exist. They're denying your covenant promises. Give me those covenant promises. Arise, save me, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This is not a prayer where David is just angry and he loses his cool and he just wants to call down curses from heaven on people who are frustrating him. He's literally saying here, oh God, punch my enemies in the face. But he's not doing that just out of frustration. This is a prayer that is deeply rooted in his confidence in the promises of God. God has made promises. The wicked are opposing those promises. And so David prays that God would conquer those who are opposing his promises. Break their teeth. question. Can you pray like that? Can you, or even maybe have you ever prayed like that? Break the teeth of my enemies, O God. We're going to see all kinds of prayers like this throughout the Psalms. Psalm 5, verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Psalm 6, verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Can you pray like that? Many of these very psalms are also found throughout the New Testament as either direct quotations or allusions. So I hope you can. For example, Psalm 28, verse 4 says, Give to them, that is the wicked, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. And then 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now we want to be careful that we don't just turn into sons of thunder, call down fire from heaven on everyone who perhaps rubs us the wrong way. But the Psalms do give us prayers as a model to be prayed and even to be sung. All of these Psalms, many of them have clear notes to them. This is the tune that this goes to. You would sing this in the temple, these very words. So these are not just words that are unique to David. These are for all the people of God. The question is, when would a prayer like this be fitting? 
Well, again, let's not forget that David offers this prayer on the basis of the promises of God and enemies opposing those promises. Let me give an example of how we might pray something like this today. One of the clear commands that we are given in Scripture is, of course, the Great Commission. Since all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, he gives a command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is God's will. That's what he's revealed very clearly. This is the task for the people of God to carry out in the world. And he has said that the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, in many parts of the world, obedience to this command would pose really no great difficulty. You could go to the country, you could plant a church, you can preach the gospel, you can teach it, you can make disciples, and maybe the the most afflictions that you will endure will be things like being reviled or being ostracized socially, which is a very real affliction. Even Peter recognizes the pain that can come with that, especially when it's coming from close friends or family. But that may be the only thing. There may not be a loss of life, or anything like that. But what about a country like North Korea? You can't do that. They're a closed country. They'll arrest you. They'll beat you. They'll kill you. You may not even be able to get into the country. They are, as a nation, as a government, opposing the will of God. He has made it clear that all nations are to bow to the king and they are opposing his will. And the government rulers of that nation are setting themselves against the king. They are the Psalm 2 rulers who are trying to break the bonds of the Lord and His Messiah. So in such a situation, what should we pray? What is our prayer for that nation? Break them. Break them, O God. Tear down the wicked who are ruling with an iron fist and are prohibiting even the bare mention of the name of Jesus. Open the gates, O God, so that your people can storm in with the power of the gospel and you can save them. Break the wicked. It is darkness There is no light at all in many, many of these places. And we need power 
We need a quake. We need the power of Sinai to shake the earth so that the people of God can stream in and so that then the nations can stream out and descend the hill of the Lord. We need desperation. And we need to call upon God to act. If we don't, we will not have. Because we don't ask. We have to be on our knees, crying out to God for him to fulfill what he has said he would do that the gospel would go forth to the nations and he would have a people for himself from all over. We are praying, nothing more. Then for God to keep his word, we are praying in his will and he will answer those prayers. But we have to storm the gates of heaven and we have to offer them as incense to the Lord. Until he comes, there will always be the wicked who oppose the king, who oppose the righteous, who oppose the people who have loved his appearing. And in our prayers, when we come to God, we must be like those poor widows crying out to the just judge. Give justice, O God. Save your people. These prayers are not to be avoided, friends. These are the weapons of our warfare. And we are to shoot every single arrow that God has placed in our quiver. We cannot say some of these are proper and some of these are not. No, we use them all. We pray for the conversion of the wicked. We pray for the downfall of the wicked. We pray that all would praise the Lord. We pray that the Lord would come soon and break the wicked and establish his kingdom on earth. We use them all. Now, lastly, I want to close by looking briefly at this last verse and the king's salvation. David ends the psalm in verse 8, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Notice that. It's, it's kind of like when you read 1 John, and he's describing why he is declaring the gospel and you think that he's about to say that we might have fellowship with God 
And then he says that you may have fellowship with one another. In this psalm, you would think that David would end here by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon me. But he doesn't say that. Your blessing be upon your people. There is a connection here between the salvation of the Lord that comes to the king and the blessing of the Lord that comes to his people. In other words, if the king is saved, the people of God will likewise be saved and be blessed. Many of David's own allies, of course, had to flee with him. Others had to conceal their loyalties to him, acting as spies until his throne would eventually be restored. But when David was delivered and those who conspired against him were defeated, the people of the king were likewise delivered. And the same can be said about Christ when he was delivered from the grave. He is the king, the king of kings. And his crucifixion, you'll remember, sent his servants scattering for their lives. The shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. But when Christ was raised from the dead, and when he was exalted at the right hand of the Father and established as the eternal King and declared to be the Son of God in power, that salvation of the Lord brought salvation and blessings to his people. We are saved, in other words, because the King was saved. He gave his life unto death. He bore in his own body the wrath of God we deserve. He went to war with the enemy of enemies. Death itself. And he defeated that enemy. And now because the king has had victory over the grave, the blessing that he enjoyed and still enjoys as the resurrected Christ is a blessing that comes to all people who would unite themselves to the king. If you are part of the conspirators, if you are part of the enemies of the king, if you are in Absalom's camp, you will perish. But if you join yourself to the king, when the king, or because the king has been delivered, so also will you be delivered. And the promise that we have in the gospel is that because Christ has been raised, we who are united to him by faith will likewise be raised and have life forever, adopted into the family of God given an inheritance of an eternal kingdom. That is an offer, friends, that remains even now as long as the Lord 
carries. So you must ask yourself, whose side you're on. This is something we will see again and again and again. You are either in the company of the wicked or in the company of the righteous. You are either loyal to the king or you are an enemy. There is no middle category. And you have to ask yourself, you have to call upon the Lord to search your own heart. Oh God, who am I with? And if you are against him, you must ask him to break you. Humble you. So that you can come to the king. Kiss the son. Swear your loyalties to him. Trust in his covenant promises and so be saved in the last day. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as your word says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot save ourselves. There is no righteousness that we can bring as an offering to you to earn a standing with you. We are all those who have joined in the coup of Absalom. We are all those who have been sworn enemies against the king. And the only way that we can be right with him is to come to him and to ask for mercy. And Lord, I am grateful that you have spoken very clearly in your word that when a sinner, when one who is among the wicked turns from his wickedness and comes to the king and cries out to the king, O king, save me. You will save them. You will give them mercy. You will give them grace. You will wash them of their sins and you will give them royal robes and welcome them into your kingdom. And so Lord, I pray for those who do not know you this day that you would humble them and that they would come to the Son. And for those who do know you, Lord, calls us to be a people who are content in all situations because we have the promises of God that we can always hold on to and hope in. We pray this in Jesus' name.